Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Today is Friday, October 29th. Welcome to episode 49. This week on H&H, we're exploring two of our favorite subjects, another H&H, Hollywood and history. Specifically, World War II history with IndieWire managing editor, journalist, commentator, and author Christian Blavelt. Christian's new book from Turner Classic Movies, Hollywood Victory, the Movies, Stars, and Stories of World War II was just released by Running Press, and he joins us in just a few moments. And we've sure enjoyed making so many new friends from TCM and want to say thank you to all of our local friends who came out for Movies of the Decade last Saturday at the historic Roxy Theater for Moulin Rouge. It was our friend Jeremy Arnold's last introduction for the series, but have no fear. You'll be able to have another chance to hear from Jeremy, this time in person, in just a couple of months at the Roxy's holiday event, A Classic Christmas. That's right. Saturday, December 18th, Jeremy will join us at the Roxy for a -a one-of-a-kind roundtable discussion before It's a Wonderful Life hits the Roxy big screen. Plan to come early for a matinee showing of White Christmas and stay for the holiday bites and wine before we hit the stage with Jeremy. And we'll also enjoy a special Christmas message from Zuzu herself from It's a Wonderful Life, Carolyn Grimes, who is a past guest here on the show. Get more info on the Roxy's Facebook page at at Bremerton Roxy. Doesn't get a whole lot more heartwarming than White Christmas and It's a Wonderful Life, and you don't have to wait until Christmas to enjoy a show full of emotion and friendship. Go see Western Washington Center for the Arts production of A.R. Gurney's two-person show, Love Letters. Love Letters, directed by our friend Dan Estes, is a nuanced examination of shared nostalgia, missed opportunities, and deep closeness between two friends, Andy and Melissa, over the course of 50 years. This is the last weekend to catch this funny and tender show, so get your tickets now at wwca.us. As you well know, our other favorite local playhouse is, of course, Bremerton Community Theater, and opening this weekend and running through November 21st, it's Clue, the play based on the film based on the board game. Several of our talented friends are involved in this hilarious whodunit, and last week Greg and I sat down with them and the rest of the cast for a special behind-the-scenes preview, available now on our YouTube channel. Watch for Greg's review of the show on our Facebook page uh, coming out soon, and get your tickets for Clue now at bctshows.com. Well, it's been a real treat interviewing TCM authors, and we hope you've had a chance to check out episode 48 with Scott Iman, and that you can make it out December 18th to meet Jeremy Arnold in person. You know, it's interesting, It's a Wonderful Life was released in 1946, just one year after World War II ended, and celebrated wartime heroism and hometown sacrifice. White Christmas, released in 1954, opens with a Christmas seat on a battlefield and celebrates the strong bonds between servicemen. We're lucky to be joined this week by a gentleman who can undoubtedly speak to all of these subjects, author of the new book from TCM and Running Press, Hollywood Victory, the Movies, Stars, and Stories of World War II, Christian Blavelt. Christian is an entertainment journalist who serves as the managing editor of leading film and TV industry website IndieWire. He regularly appears on CBS New York to give previews of upcoming films and award season analysis. He's hosted films on Turner Classic Movies and has presented at South by Southwest and San Diego Comic-Con. Along with Hollywood Victory, Christian is the author of nine other books, including Star Wars Made Easy and Cinematic Cities, New York. And he joins us from his home in St. Petersburg, Florida. Welcome to the show, Christian. Welcome. It is so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, not a problem. We've been excited about this one uh, through looking through your book and uh, so happy to talk about it. So uh, speaking of your book, um, so what inspired you to write about World War II era in Hollywood? Is it something about the a period of history that, that drew you to it? 
Well, I know you guys are big fans of the 1940s and the 1940s happens to be my favorite movie decade. Uh, I just think that the, the sheer variety of films that you have at that time is really remarkable. Obviously films about the war, but you know, also so many great musicals, melodramas, you have the rise of film noir. You also have the beginning of a real international art house. You know, after the war films from, from Italy and Japan really starting to make uh, a splash in the US. And, you know, so the sheer variety is something that I always loved about those films. But then beyond that, you just have the most incredible story in not just World War II, but in Hollywood's role within World War II, which has been told in bits and pieces over the years. One of my favorites, of course, Mark Harris's Five Came Back, an incredible book. But, you know, I, I felt like there was a lot to be told about that time other than what Mark Harris told in that book and, you know, about the Hollywood canteen and about some, some of uh, what the actors and movie stars were doing during that time. Uh, some who risked life and limb, you know, actually in uniform, some who died like Carol Lombard and uh, Leslie Howard. And, uh, you know, truly it, 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 there, the thing with World War II is that there are just infinite stories that you can tell. Like you, you think that you've heard it all with World War II. No, no, no. There's always, always more. And even with Hollywood's place in it, that is the case. Yeah, because yeah, it's not just the war. It's everything that went on on the home front. And it's something that, uh, yeah, like you said, it's a lot more complex than you would think. It's so true. No, no question about it. I, I just find it endlessly fascinating. It was the kind of thing like, you know, for, for years leading up to actually pitching this book and, and getting involved in, in, in writing this for Running Press and TCM, you know, I would all often go down like Wikipedia rabbit holes about World War II. Like all of a sudden I'd find myself like, you know, spending like an hour or so, like just reading about like the Battle of Kursk or something like the largest tank battle ever. And then, you know, that would lead to something else and lead to something else and lead to something else. And there are just always more things to, to learn about. So for me, this was, writing this book was a very natural fit because I'd seen all the movies, of course. Like there was very little that I actually needed to watch to prepare for this book because I'd already seen all the films. And and then it was just, you know, I, I kind of knew the, the interesting areas to really focus on. Yeah, I had to do a ton of research before starting uh, uh, in on writing this, but uh, I already kind of knew like what the big storylines were going to be and how I wanted to assemble them for the book. Well, speaking of assembly, flipping through the pages of the book, it's laid out really well. The amazing photos, but nice, short, easy-to-read, detailed chapters. We're always curious, for authors, what is it like putting the book together? Do you have uh, some say in the layout? Do you also collect and procure the photos uh, that uh, that are used, etc.? What What was that process like? Yeah, so every single photo you see in the book, including the two photos on the cover of Veronica Lake and Clark Gable, uh, I assembled myself. I, I pulled those myself. I found them myself um, by going through the Warner Media photo library uh, and other sources as well. Um, the Everett collection is always a, a great go-to for anything uh, classic Hollywood, really any any older film. And so, yeah, that was a huge part of it because, you know, you write the book, you have the whole narrative assembled, the whole manuscript. And then, you know, it's like, got to do the whole like a whole other rounds that's like on top of that which is just the photo research and uh that that took a you know at least a month or so um before i filed the whole thing about about a year ago i filed the, the entire manuscript about a year ago which is funny because it's almost like the experience of like 
shooting a movie in a way and then you know it's done and you haven't thought about it for a while and then oh a year later now you've got to promote it you know and that and that's that's kind of where we are here in a sense uh obviously there were some edits to do uh in between but yeah it's 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 funny to think about that process no the, the photo research was was is one of the most um difficult parts i think of putting together a book like this so yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, we have, there's an incredible designer at Running Press who who put this together, so I can't take credit for the layouts, but, um, you know, definitely there was thought involved in like, oh yeah, I think this photo should go with this part bit of text. Um, and so I was able to at least contribute that that part to it. Well, I got a kick out of the, the dedication um, in your book, I, to quote, to my mom, my quarantine buddy for putting up with me whenever I'd say, not now, my brain is in 1942. <laughs> which I, I, like I said, I got a kick out of. But uh, around that, it, it just it it piques my curiosity because your book covers World War II, but it also covers a few years before World War II and a little bit after. So my question was, what were the guardrails, or how did you determine those guardrails uh, of when to start chronologically and then and when to finish up? Yeah, that's that's so interesting because. You're right. You know, you, you, I think it's about 50 or 60 pages into the book before you even get to Pearl Harbor, America's entry into the war. And, you know, it's a it's it's an interesting thing because there are so many different points where you could really say, yeah, this is where World War II begins. You know, there's obviously America's involvement, which is quite late into it, really. 1940, the end of 1941. Uh, you know, you could say the start of the war in Europe, September 1st, 1939. Okay. But you could go back further and you could say 1937 when Japan invaded China or even earlier, if you want to say when they like invaded Manchuria. So, you know, there are all these different points where you could say, like, when did this war actually begin? And for me, I, I think it was so important to lay the foundation of what was happening in Hollywood in the 30s, which was, you know, a very isolationist environment. Uh, which was reflective of America as a whole at that time. People did not want to get involved in another war abroad. There was an embrace of refugees and immigrants from Europe who had been exiled because of the Nazis, but there wasn't really a desire to do anything more than just welcome them and give them jobs. There wasn't any real political engagement at that time. So for me, it was like, You've got to cover all of that, though, because the pivot that then happens in Hollywood from them being so isolationist to suddenly being so engaged with the war effort and everyone seemed to come together overnight, which is really what happened with Pearl Harbor and, and realizing that they had to face this, this menace of fascism you know, in Germany and Japan. And uh, you know, that, that's a real pivot. And that's, that's a, you know, some people saw it coming. Some people knew that war was probably inevitable. Some other people didn't. So I think you had to go back, you know, a good bit in order to really get that, in, in order for that pivot to really be meaningful. But also just Hollywood changed so much in the 30s because, because of the rise of the Nazis, because you have all these immigrants, all these amazing refugees who who settled in, in Hollywood and added so much to the industry in, in ways that we can barely even fathom. You know, Billy Wilder. Uh, I, I think it was like Billy Wilder and Hedy Lamarr and Fritz Lang were some that, that I chose to focus on at the very beginning and, you know, then follow their stories throughout. But, uh, you know, it's like in a way for them, like you could almost say like World War II had begun, you know, as of the very rise of the Nazis in 1933 for them because their entire lives were disrupted and uprooted and, 
you know, so it's, it's kind of hard. You have to get that whole backstory, you know? So I think some people reading the book may be surprised that it, it, it does take quite a while to get to Pearl Harbor, but no, you really need that because those are, those are the, some fundamental changes to the texture of Hollywood that, uh, you know, have, have stayed with the business ever since. I like how you were able to take the macro scale and explain that. Many of us know some of those touch points uh, throughout that time period, at least the time period that the United States was involved. But you also dialed things down to the micro and told those, those human stories about people like Betty Davis in the Hollywood Canteen. Uh, one of my favorite authors, James Elroy, uh, is writing a series currently about Hollywood during World War II. And it's, it's fictionalized, but he uses many uh, well-known characters, Orson Welles, uh, et cetera, from that era of Hollywood. And it really gives it a vibrancy to his fiction. Betty Davis is one of them. And so I knew a little bit about Betty, but this story of the Hollywood Canteen was brand new. The canteen itself, it sounds like it gave really a new level of accessibility to Hollywood that maybe hadn't been felt by the public before. Can you talk a little bit about the philosophy of the canteen amid a Hollywood that was really previously viewed maybe almost as a higher class, not quite accessible to John and Jane Q. American? Definitely. Well, the whole idea of the Hollywood canteen was that this was a place where the biggest stars in the business could come and put on entertainment for ordinary servicemen and women. Uh, you know, ordinary service people in uniform could come there, get coffee, donuts, and really be entertained by the best talent that Hollywood had to offer, including actually being able to hit the dance floor with, uh, you know, s some of their, their favorite stars. Uh, you could show up and, you know, Rita Hayworth could be the, the coat check girl. Uh, Marlena Dietrich could be in the, the kitchen preparing some food. Uh, you could, you know, dance with either of them. Sign me up just based on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's so it's so incredible. It's like <laughs> yeah. wow, like right there, that is such an imagine like being there. If you're just an ordinary like soldier in uniform or or airman or or sailor, and and you go there and get get to experience this. I mean, who wouldn't want to be like a fly on the wall at this place? And and the fact that like you know, none of it was ever really filmed. I mean, there are photographs, still photographs, but, you know, to actually have this incredible place where Hollywood is suddenly democratized and these amazing luminous stars are right before you and are accessible. And there were even a few romances, you know, between stars and, and uh, servicemen. Actually, Betty Davis is believed to have had a right. romance with one. Mm -hmm. You know, so this was the brainchild of, of Betty Davis and John Garfield. And uh, it's just, it's one of those things that's so kind of mythical and magical. It's like, it's hard to believe that it almost existed in a way. Um, you know, it's, there was a movie version. There was like a movie called Hollywood Canteen that was about this, that Warner Brothers released in 1944. Thelma Daves directed and it's 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 a pretty good movie. It is it's a Warner Brothers film, so it's like basically only Warner Brothers talent on display, which would not have been the case at the actual canteen. Like they would have had like a Warner Brothers night like on Tuesday, and then it would be an RKO Starlet night on Thursday or something like. They would have all of the studios would have been involved. So in a way, the real thing was even greater than what was presented in the movie. But uh, it's just it's it's there never been anything quite like that before because I think yeah you're right the stars had always been held at a bit of a remove. 
And in a way, that's sort of the beginning of this idea of collapsing the hierarchies, you know, between us and them. And that, you know, would continue to collapse over time until you get social media. And now, you know, your favorite stars, just like, you know, and at reply, you know, away. So it's, uh, it's a really formative moment, I think. And uh, I think it's one that's weirdly still been under discussed, because I think it is such a special thing that that existed. Well, you mentioned the unity that happened after Pearl Harbor, and this is an example of Hollywood and the war effort kind of in, in support of each other. Uh, it's such a different environment than, than it is now. Disney, for example, would basically make you know propaganda or, or how-to films, you know, uh, and so would the other studios. Everything was kind of positive about the war effort. Was that how Hollywood generally felt about the war effort? Were they generally in support of it? Or was that something that was planned or directed by maybe the government? Well, the government was involved to an extent. There was, you know, there were represented, like um, Nelson Pointer uh, was like the head of the motion picture office of, uh, basically that was sort of like the the arm of the Roosevelt administration that was in um, LA trying to sort of whip up some some frenzy or, or fervor among the studio heads for the war effort and um, to align a bit more with the, the aims of the administration. Uh, Nelson Pointer, actually, I mentioned that name specifically because he was the head of our newspaper here in St. Petersburg, the St. Petersburg Times for, for many decades, which is now the Tampa Bay Times. But um, he, you know, so there was an element of that, but, you know, I can't say that there are any real cases of people pushing back um, and thinking, oh, I don't want to just do something that's like propaganda for the government. I think there was a real feeling almost, you know, truly unanimous. I, I, I'm racking my brain to see if there was any kind of dissenting voice, but uh, I, I think everyone just felt that, you know, the Nazis and Imperial Japan, let alone fascist Italy, just had to be fought, you know, no matter what, they had to be toppled, they had to be defeated. And uh, so there really wasn't, a, you know, any real pushback to any of this. There had been, you know, in the 30s, some people in Hollywood who either acquiesced to uh, these kind of fascist powers. Uh, there, you know, I mean, in the 30s, there was like the Nazi Nazi Germany had a consul in LA, a guy named Georg Gisling, who uh, actually did like advise on the treatments of movies and everything, and tried to present Germany in a more positive light. Some people bought into that. I think there's like a shocking quote that I have where like Mary Pickford was like, you know. Uh, viva il duce, viva fascismo, and all this. And it was like, uh, you know, really, she thought fascism was a good thing and she thought Hitler was great. And uh, over time, of course, I think anyone who kind of flirted with those ideas were, I mean, they were obviously proven wrong, of course, but it's like, I think they were convinced even as well, even if they had, you know, held these ridiculous ideas. I think they, they even kind of knew this is terrible. I disavow this, you know, this is. A horrible thing. I mean, you know, there's the famous story of like Capra briefly kind of flirting with Mussolini or thinking that, you know, uh, Italian fascism was kind of a good thing. I think some of that is a little trumped up just to make him look bad. Uh, also, probably some anti-immigrant, anti-Italian sentiment there directed specifically at him to, you know, play that up a bit. But, you know, but there's the famous story of like how Mussolini actually wanted Frank Capra to direct a movie about his life and all this. And I think maybe Capra 
considered it a little bit, but you know, once he studied fascism closer, he realized that this is not something he wanted to be involved with. And of course, then he became one of the greatest proponents of uh, Hollywood's involvement in the U.S. war effort. So, you know, whatever, whatever had gone on there in the 30s, I think was totally washed away. But yeah, I mean, in, during the war years itself, I mean, Hollywood was like completely on board with this, you know, completely on board. I, 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 and, I and I think that's reflective of America at large. You know, you, you don't really hear about many pacifists during World War II. You know, you don't really hear about people like there was no real peace movement in the U.S. like saying we shouldn't get involved in this. We should withdraw or whatever. No, it was like the, the feeling was there needs to be like total victory and then we'll have peace, you know. And uh, so I think in that regard, Hollywood was very reflective of the country as a whole. Was there any people speak anybody in Hollywood speaking out against things like, for example, the internment of the Japanese Americans? You know, it's one thing to be pro-war uh, or pro the cause, yeah. and it's another to, ooh, but what about this? Uh, was were there any voices like that at the time, or were they pretty unanimous? Uh, you know, American could do no wrong during that period. Well, you've hit the nail on the head of what is is the dark side of having that kind of unanimous pro-war feeling, which is that if there's no sort of pacifist streak there, there's there is such a unanimity of feeling and, and so little dissent, you know, a, a true injustice like the internment of Japanese Americans can happen without much dissent or fanfare or, you know, people really uh, protest. Acknowledgement even. Way. Acknowledgement even. Yeah. yeah. I mean, off the, right off the top of my head, like there is, like, I remember um, Mary Astor was, upset that you some of the Japanese American castmates that she had on, on her film Across the Pacific that John Houston directed, that they were interred. But there is almost kind of the undercurrent to that, that it's like, she's just upset that it like delayed the production of the movie. Not, not necessarily that she was like protesting their actual, you know, internment. Um, it was an inconvenience more than anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yikes. The only time that I can really think of, and this this is fascinating, is like that there was a, any real sort of outcry or protest about any like racist depictions of 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 Japanese or Japanese Americans was, um, you know, one of the real disappointments uh, in my research was uh, about Greg Tolans, the great cinematographer of Citizen Kane and The Letter and Best Years of Our Lives, so many great movies. But he made this documentary called December 7th, the movie, which was just, it was like 90 minutes. And it was just like this all out, like racist invective against Jap against Japanese people, against Japanese Americans. And it was even recognized as such at the time that like it, this was commissioned for the military and the military commanders who saw this were so horrified. They actually were. And these are like military commanders who are like in charge of like the internment policy. Keep that in mind. That they that they were like, no, this film needs to be scrapped. It needs to be completely re-edited. And it, need, it needs to be, you know, redone altogether. And so like John Ford did step in and then re-edited it. And it turned out to be like a half hour movie instead with most of that cut out. But it was like, even there, there was some recognition. Like, you know, this is really unfair. This is not good. This is, you know... And yet there was still this unquestioned move to, you know, uh, detain 
all these Japanese American families all, you know, along the West Coast and and do so for, you know, such an extended period of time. And and, and what's strange about it too is that you would think that there would have been more pushback at the time because clearly people did know that it was wrong. I mean, it was only like 40 some years later that Ronald Reagan, who lived, you know, and worked during this time as a Hollywood actor, you know, that he actually created like a, you know, he he signed into law a reparations program for, you know, financial settlements, financial payments to, you know, the descendants of, of people or, or actual, you know, internees, uh, you know, who, people who had been, you know, uh, Japanese Americans who'd been interned during that time. And so the fact that with it only took like 40 years to realize that there needed to be some financial compensation for that shows that people definitely knew it was wrong, that people of that generation who carried that out felt that they needed to make amends. But no, at the time, there really was very little pushback. Well, we've obviously gotten from the point in World War II where we had this unification of everybody behind a war effort to where we are now, which is all over the board to say, you know, it's probably an understatement. But Hollywood almost seems now as as if it's the opposite of of being behind, you know, things like that. Uh, but how did how did that transition happen? I know you talk in, in your book about uh, Rita Hayworth not wanting her picture on the atom bomb. And then you have blacklists and you have things like that. Was it a gradual process of things just happening that kind of disintegrated that lockstep that Hollywood had with national policy? You could almost you could almost argue that the World War II years were kind of the exception that proved the rule in a way and that in the years leading up to Hollywood's involvement in the war effort, you know, Washington had various investigations into things that were happening in Hollywood. There was like the the Bees Committee. Uh, there was, you know, like the early House on American Activities Committee. Um, there was this um, like Richard Nye, the senator from North Dakota, who always wanted to, you know, have these kind of like investigations into Hollywood. And I think that, you know, there was a, some, some of the stuff that happened after the war with the blacklisting and everything was happening in the 30s. You know, so at that time, I think, I, th- I think maybe there had been even an initial feeling on the part of some in Hollywood that throwing themselves so energetically into the war effort could be a way to prove their patriotism if they had been suspected of communism or any kind of leftist ties during the 30s that had brought some suspicion upon them. In the case of like James Cagney, that was absolutely the case. Like he had appeared on a list of suspected communists in the 30s. And so he he knew, oh, I've got to make the most, I think he actually said, I got to make the most goddamn patriotic movie ever made. And so he made Yankee Doodle Dandy, which tied in perfectly with the war effort. He even plays FDR at the end. <laughs> and um, so th- there was an element of that, that I feel like that, you know, in a way it's like after the war year, you know, after the war ended, it's sort of like, it's it reverted kind of to the way it had been in the thirties with Washington being very suspicious of Hollywood there being a degree of witch hunts, you know, in the thirties, I mean, like there were, there was such anti-communist fervor about Hollywood that there was even some, I remember there was some list on which Shirley Temple was like a 10 year old appeared as a suspected communist. And, um, there was some investigation into this and, uh, I, it was like, you know, did she have like some connection to communists in like Finland or something? It was some weird thing. It's so like the Finnish government had to respond and be like, you know, 
you're crazy, like you're crazy, like this girl, Shirley Temple, along with your mouse is your greatest export <laughs> and all this. Uh, so it's like a, a lot of the stuff that happened, you know, with the blacklist and everything after the, the war had kind of been there beforehand. It had just been tabled. You know, as time went on, then, you know, then it became more of just a generational thing. Certainly once the Vietnam War started, you know, there was an old guard in Hollywood that was very conservative. Uh, and then, you know, the younger generation, which was not. And that that dynamic played out, I think, almost until very recently. And now it's just uh, the entire industry is fragmented and there's no real coherent point of view to anything. Everybody just believes their own thing. Everybody has their own agenda. And there's no real unified front to anything in Hollywood today. That segues nicely into our next question, and, and that is about the positive, perhaps even glorified version of war that we saw in the films that were made during the war and, and shortly thereafter. And, and since then as well, but like you said, as the generations changed, that disenchantment with war, America's involvement abroad, um, you started seeing more and more of that, especially in Hollywood, that new generation of actors in the 70s, new generation really of filmmaking and movies that were about war but weren't a glorification. It was much more the negative side, the negative impact on people while they're there and when they come back home. However, World War II and World War II films continue to be popular, the, both the movies that were made during that period and modern movies. We think of the, you know, uh, the juggernaut that was Saving Private Ryan and, and others of that ilk. Why do you think it is that that generation or that time period, uh, even when it comes to, to conflict, um, is still so popular? Is it, is it maybe because that was the last time we were united about anything? I think that may be it. And I think it's just because the, the battle lines were so clearly drawn. The bad guys are so obvious. Well put. And, and, and the good guys were a big tent. You know, it's like people of different political persuasions, different ethnic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds all came together to fight this menace that was so monolithic and singular in its evil. And I think that just the, the clarity of that, the clean cut nature of it's us versus them and, and us can actually be a really big tent and really be a, a, a place for, you know, so many different points of view. You know, I, I love like, I, I, that's something that was put into a lot of movies at that time that like, even if you look at something like Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat, that's really interesting because you've got in that one Lifeboat, You've got like the socialite um, gossip reporter in Tallulah Bankhead. You've got like this proletarian factory worker who's basically like a communist. Uh, you've got then the wealthy capitalist industrialist who like employed the, the factory worker and the factory worker doesn't like the industrialists and vice versa, but they ultimately all stand together against this Nazi threat, this like horrible German guy who they do rescue from the sea and almost like destroys them, but then they, uh, they kill them basically. Um, but, you know, I think it's, there's a clarity to that time that we don't have now because every, everything is so much more unclear. Everything is so muddy. Everything is so, you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's, what's even real, you know, what's even true. A lot of times we don't know. And uh, it's a very confusing time in which to live. And I think that, you know, you can look back at this particular moment of World War II and see something that's very clear and, you know, that doesn't have a lot of this confusion to it. That said, there may be an element of like nostalgia just being, 
you know, kind of misleading because obviously there were there, there were things that were more confusing, you know, about that time that, you know, need to be addressed. And I do try to address in this book. I mean, like, you know, obviously like African-American uh, servicemen were treated horribly in the military. I mean, like, you know, if, if you were a black uh, sailor or soldier or airman, I mean, you could suffer violence at the hands of like one of your, you know, fellow like white service people at any time, you know, and I mean, and those, those kind of more messy details need to be acknowledged as well. I think, I think that, you know, there's only so much that you can have nostalgia for a time like this. I understand why that happens. And, and I think in a lot of ways, there's so much to celebrate about America at this time, so much to celebrate, no question about it, but that doesn't mean that you need to ignore those messier details too. Uh, before we let you go, I've got to ask, what is your favorite movie made during World War II? And then follow up, what is your favorite movie about World War II made after that period of time? Those are such good questions. Uh, I think that my favorite movie about World War II is a movie, it's a movie that I'm going to be showing on, on TCM Next Thursday night, uh, November 4th, Thursday, November 4th, it's called Edge of Darkness. And it's by Lewis Milestone, stars Errol Flynn, Anne Sheridan, Walter Houston, uh, Ruth Gordon, uh, Helma Dantine, uh, who was in Casablanca, and uh, Mrs. Menever is the, the down German pilot and everything. This movie, Edge of Darkness, is really interesting because it, it, you know, it's ostensibly led by Errol Flynn, but it's really more a tribute to collective action and how an entire group of people need to really stand up to a Nazi invasion. Uh, this is set in Norway, you know, which was overrun by the Nazis and occupied for, for four years. I guess actually almost five years, come to think of it. And uh, they... You know, it's about how this this particular town ultimately decides to rise up and rebel and what it takes to get them to that point where they're really willing to risk life and limb. And I think it's an interesting movie because it opens with like a scene of mass devastation, like hundreds of bodies lying about. This whole town seems completely destroyed. And it's a it's a grim vision of war that you sometimes don't get during the 1940s. Because, you know, I mean, they don't want to, you know, if, if they're actually showing movies to people in uniform who may be going off to fight, they don't want to make it look too bad, you know, but this movie actually does make it look pretty bad. And, uh, and I think that might be in part because Lewis Milestone, the director had directed uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which was the ultimate anti-war statement, you know, in 1930. But by this point in 1943, he was totally pro-war. And this is like, this is what World War II did to people that you could be like the director of like the ultimate anti-war movie. And now you're suddenly pro-war. And, and that's what this movie ultimately is. And it's like the, the way that all of these people in this town come to, you know, decide that they're going to fight the Nazis is really incredible, including Ann Sheridan, who, you know, is such a proactive warrior character in so many ways. We see her at the end. You know, a lot of war movies, you don't really see a woman necessarily like toting a machine gun alongside a group of men. This is a movie where that happens. And I love that, you know, it's like, this is not just, you know, a dude fest. Uh, you've got like this amazing female character who is, you know, they're fighting right alongside them. So that for me is my favorite of the war years. And so I'm gonna be introducing that on TCM on November 4th, really love that film. And then after the war years, God, I mean, 
it's really hard to quibble with Saving Private Ryan, I have to say. I mean, that movie, everything about it, you know, Janusz Kaminski's cinematography, I think one of William's best, one of John Williams' best scores, it, and, and the fact that it's so, it seems so epic, and yet it only takes place within like a week after D-Day, <laughs> his really captures the incredible sweep of, of World War II. And, uh, you know, I mean, what can I say about that movie that hasn't been said a million times? It really is just a, a magnificent piece of art. But, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see the stories that, that, are, that will continue to be made. I mean, there, there are endless stories to mine from World War II. When you think you've heard it all, there is always more to learn about World War II. Bringing it all back around to what you said earlier about it being so, it's such a complex time. Yeah, and speaking of more, maybe that's the next book for you, is uh, the movies about World War II that were made after the war. Ooh, hey, could be. You know, I, I haven't actually given too much thought to my next book. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's a combination of serendipity and opportunity. You know, this was um, something that had been brewing in me for a long time, this book, but it was also something that, you know, TCM and, and Running Press really wanted to do. So uh, it was just a perfect alignment. But yeah, we'll have to see, you know, I, I love, you know, the way that I wrote this book, it was almost like written in a way, kind of like a screenplay, like, you know, I'll introduce certain people I'll consider almost like as characters up front, like, you know, we'll have Hedy Lamar introduced in the first chapter or whatever, then, you know, 100 pages may go by, I've introduced all kinds of other people in the, in the interim, some of them I'll come back to check in on them, some of them, you know, may not for a while. And then, you know, we'll check in on Hedy Lamar again, almost like writing like a an ensemble screenplay you know it was like uh, that was like kind of what i was was trying to do for this like really tell a, a sweeping story in a, in a lot of ways and that would be what i'd want to do for my next book for sure you know um do something that really delves into these personalities makes it personal talking about huge things but like you know getting those personal details in there like about you know billy wilder hunched over his hot plate at the chateau marmond or you know the the little touches the little things that you know people might have done at the hollywood canteen or you know just really try to make it as as personal and and feel make these characters make these people come to life as much as possible that's whatever i do next i want it to be something like that well the book hollywood victory the movies stars and stories of world war ii um you succeed my friend and whatever the next project is we would love to have you back on and talk about that one with you and I would love to be back. You guys are great. Thank you so much. These these questions were amazing. I, I love the concept of your show. Thank you for taking such an interest in this whole era. Well, thank you again to our guest, Christian Blauvelt. His new book, Hollywood Victory, The Movies, Stars, and Stories of World War II is available now in hardcover and on Kindle. And you can keep up with him on Twitter at at C-T-B-L-A-U-V-E-L-T, C-T Blauvelt, linked in the show notes. Also watch for him on November 4th on TCM. Join us next week, Friday, November 5th, when we'll be joined by one of Hollywood's busiest, most talented, and most passionate voice actors, Rob Paulson. And if you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. Tell them to visit heilmanandhaver.com and tune in on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Keep up with all our latest on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and check out our special segments like In the Mix and Get to Know a Theater on YouTube. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haber.